I asked uh, Debbie if she'd stay up here for a couple minutes and, and help me begin the sermon. I, I also realized as I did the announcements that I had forgotten something. Uh, it may have flashed up on the screen, I don't know, but uh, we talked about uh, the Easter offering to Zambia and how powerful that was. Uh, Laura and I would like to lead a uh, trip to Zambia next November with our new missions director. And if any of you would be interested in uh, what that might involve, you can get information out in the great room afterwards. We are, I think for the first time I can remember, uh, going to have the same sermon four weeks in a row. That is, we're going to talk from the same passage four weeks uh, continuously in part because sometimes when you hear stories so often, they tend to freeze in place, sort of like one of those bugs that gets caught in amber, you know, that's the way they actually find out about dinosaur DNA, that, that this could be millions of years old, and it never changes, it never moves. You know how the story's going to end, even as soon as you hear it start. We would like not to do that. And so as Jake, the first week, talked about this story that's found in Luke 16, he says, we want to live in this story again and again so the story starts to live inside us. That's our, that's our prayer, to, to keep it alive. So I, I asked Debbie to help me. The story in Luke 15 is about two lost children. One doesn't know he's lost and one is lost. So I, I'd like this morning to tell you two stories about lost children. One you don't know yet, and one you've heard your whole life, so that we see what God thinks about lost children. Jesus said, once there was a man with two sons. And once, there was an 11-year-old little girl named Stella in Gulu, Uganda. And the younger son said, Father, I want what's coming to me right now. So the father divided the property between them. And one day, rebel soldiers came into her village of Gulu and kidnapped Stella right away from her mother and her sister. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. Undisciplined and corrupt, he wasted everything. And after he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through the country, and he began to hurt. He signed on to slop some pigs, and he was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. And little Stella was forced to run away and learn to fight like a soldier, to live far from home, and to sleep, even though she was a child, to sleep with some of these men soldiers. When he came to his senses, he said, All my father's farmhands sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against God. I have sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. And three years later, little Stella is 14 years old. And she has a child that one of the babies forced on him. And one day, there was a battle, and Stella was captured and rescued 
and taken to a refugee center still hours away from her home. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. And they began to have a wonderful time. Stella's mom heard that she was alive those three years later, and she ran for hours to her daughter. And when she saw her, she threw her arms around her little girl and kept saying, you're so big, you're so skinny, you're so big, you're so skinny, and she would not let her go. All this time, the older son was out in the field, and when the day's work was done, he came near the house and he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He heard, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off, sulking, and refused to join in. His father came out. Tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, I've stayed here serving you for years, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? But this son of yours, who has thrown away your money on whores, shows up, and you go all out with a feast. Stella was afraid to go home. When she had been with the soldiers... She was forced to kill one of the boys in the village when he tried to escape. A whole pack of kids were forced by the soldiers to chase the little boy, catch him in a stream, and beat him up. And not content with beating him up, the soldiers said, kill him. And so they picked up rocks, and they beat the little boy to death. And Stella said, the blood was all over my hands, and, and I put my hands in the water, and I, I can't get the blood off my hands. The father said to his older boy, My son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time, and everything that is mine is yours. But this is wonderful, and we had to celebrate. The brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. That's the power of a story. It sucks you in. It makes you wonder what happens next. Does the older brother say, all right? Or does he say, mm-mm, you? We don't know. Does Stella get to go home? Does the war end? We don't know. We get lost in stories and then we find ourselves in those stories. Obviously, I met Stella. 12 years ago. The reason I know it was 12 years ago is because my daughter Maggie was a senior in high school and she left high school early to go and work in a slum in Nairobi and she was around when I, when I met Stella. Four years older than Stella. She might have been living on the moon for all Stella knew. And I'll never forget that Stella could not look me in the eye. 
Just couldn't look any adult man in the face. When Jake said it'd be a productive, I think, to tell the story of the prodigal son again and again and again, I, I, I couldn't wait to say yes. It's, it's my favorite story that there ever was. It's, I, think it's the, I think it's the core story of the whole Bible because it's personal to me because of Stella. As a matter of fact, I've said that over the years, and in my office, the story of the prodigal son lives. This is actually the, the story of the prodigal son on my wall. And one of my friends knew that I loved it and went and bought a page out of a folio of the King James Bible. Very expensive, and it's the story of the prodigal son. And we put that on a wall with some of the most famous pictures of the story of the prodigal son so that I'd see it every day and be reminded why I was here and where the prodigals are. So you see the wall. You see the wall. (laughs) The story has been told in different ways and places. The most famous probably is by Rembrandt. Rembrandt has a picture that hangs in Russia called The Return of the Prodigal, and you could stare at this picture for hours. I have this little print, and I notice something different every single day. And then when I was in Washington, D.C., the wife of the head of International Justice Mission is a docent at the National Gallery, and she took Laura and me to see The Return of the Prodigal Son by Bornini. And I fell in love with that picture, too. And then when Stella would not leave my mind, I was at a cathedral in London, and they told the story of the prodigal son from a different perspective. They told the story of the prodigal daughter, and I have the prodigal daughter in my arms in my office so that it stays personal for me. All those kids, all those kids so far from home, All those kids that that can't get home. And to finish it off, to keep it personal, I I keep a picture of my three prodigals on the wall. My kids. They're always going to be your kids. Sons-in-law and daughters and sons. And so I... Every day I look at that and I am reminded that Jesus comes to bring home the prodigals. He says, I come to seek and to save the lost of all kinds. People that look like they're all screwed up and people that look like they're all wound up. People on top of the world and people at the bottom of the garbage dump. He says, I come to find them and to bring them home. The lost coins and the lost sheep. And in this story, the lost children. The setting of the story in Luke is important It shows why Jesus tells the story. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners, it's like double sinners, the dregs of society were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the church people, the church people began to mutter, this man welcomes sinners. He even eats with them. And that's when Jesus told this story. He told it because the people who felt far from God and far from church were leaning in. And he told it because the people who felt close to God and close to church were leaning away. 
Our culture has very different views of what prodigals look like. Jake uh, started by saying it's sort of like spring break, but it's more like being a prodigal is more like going to Vegas. We, we have these commercials, go to Vegas, you'll have the time of your life, you'll have the time of your life, and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, the big lie. But that's what prodigals do. They want to try something new. Maybe my good time will be there. Different cultures experience this in different ways. How many of you have ever seen somebody who is Amish, part of the Amish communities? Lots of you have seen them in the, in the buggies. The, the Amish are a set-aside people. They live apart from culture, and it's odd to see them in New York City. They don't fit in, do they? But the Amish communities don't want to have people there that don't want to be there. So many, not all, but many Amish communities have the tradition called Rumspringa. Rumspringa means 14, 15, 16-year-old young becoming adults are freed up from living in their Amish community, don't have to wear Amish clothing, can go to the city, can go wherever they want, and the parents don't follow them because they want the kids to choose. They, they try the good life. They look at the, the world's stuff and they say, if you feel God call you, come back. And Room Springer usually ends, usually ends with about 70% of the Amish children coming back and only when they come back are they baptized because they have chosen. So whether you call it spring break on steroids or college kids doing the college thing or, or you call it a midlife crisis, this prodigal stuff, they never tell you about the other side of the story. They, they, they don't talk about the scars that come uh, when, uh, when your mother turns on the computer and that image flashes up. Or when you're someplace and all of a sudden the porn that you've been watching is discovered by accident. Or, or there's the fear that if somebody really looked at your taxes, if somebody really knew what you were doing, you'd be terribly embarrassed and ashamed. That's, that's the fear that prodigals live with and it doesn't stop. One of my very best friends in, in, involved in ministry with hundreds of thousands, from 20 years in his past, his past has reached out to grab him by the neck. That's, that's what happens to prodigals. Let me, uh, let me tell you something that you will not hear any other place this week. It is a reason enough for you to come back next week. You need to hear this, and you need to hear it enough to believe this. You are not who you think you are. You're not who you think you are. You are an eternal being designed to flourish in an everlasting universe, and anything you're accomplishing is insignificant compared to what you are becoming. 
You are an eternal being designed to flourish in an everlasting universe, and everything that you're doing, everything you're accomplishing is nothing compared to what you are becoming on the inside out. Sometimes it's hard to tell who's the prodigal, and sometimes it's hard to tell who's the older brother. Sometimes it's obvious, you know, you you get somebody who's got to check into drug rehab, or you get somebody who has to declare bankruptcy, or, or you get somebody who all of a sudden has elected the elder, prodigals. But this week, I had a friend who couldn't be here, and he says, I, I, he sent me a note. He says, all, all my life, I felt like I must be the older brother. And I, and I wonder, okay? But, but John, what would a prodigal look like in Shoreview? What does a prodigal son look like in Edina? Help me. And, and we agreed in our little e-chat that a lot of times prodigals don't look like prodigals. They just look like the people that don't like all those church people. Prodigals tend to be people who want to go their own way, find their own thing. They're not bad people. They just refuse to believe that the only good people are the rules lovers. The church rule followers, they want to do it their own way. Um, I'm going to ask you to pray for me. This, this month, I'm part of a committee that is picking the new president of World Vision. Old president is leaving, retired, doing a great job. But we're looking for a new president, and we have hired a search firm that's gone and found about a dozen world-class leaders, incredible people, and then the search consultant went and met with each of them, sends us the notes, and we are just about to pick the four or five that we're going to interview face-to-face. Well, he sends me the notes, and uh, he says, I'm not sure about this one. Should we give this one to the committee? And I said, well, he said, well I went there. This guy has run two Fortune 50 companies, very accomplished uh, person, very active in his church. And so he was talking about world vision. And finally, uh, my friend, the consultant, says, well, how would you describe your faith? How would you describe your theology? Because, you know, world vision is a Christian organization. And the guy goes, yeah, I knew that was coming. Uh, So I I was in church a couple weeks ago, and uh, my pastor was saying there are a lot of people who believe in Jesus, but... Jesus is in the car with them, but Jesus is in the passenger seat. And he said to them, is Jesus in the passenger seat, or is he in the driver's seat, or is he sort of running behind the, behind the car? And, he, and this, uh, this candidate said, I, I got to tell you, as I thought about it, ain't nobody driving my car but me. He says, I, I'm, I'm driving the car. Jesus, sometimes Jesus is a passenger, and sometimes I don't want Jesus around for parts of the ride. And he leads to the consultant, he goes, not going to get the job, am I? (laughs) The consultant says, that doesn't matter. That's not up to me. That's up to the committee. He's not going to get the job. But (laughs) that's not the important part. The consultant leans forward and says, you're going to get a great job somewhere. That's not what matters. What matters is you and Jesus in the car. I think that's the most, he said, I think that's the reason I'm here today. And to tell you how important I think that is, the consultant says, I'll give you $5,000 to give to your favorite charity. If you'll call your pastor and ask him if you can talk about 
Jesus in the driver's seat in the car that you just don't know what's going on. 5,000 bucks. And, uh, and, and what struck me, you know what that guy was doing? He was given the prodigal son cab fare to get back to dad. He couldn't make him go, but he was saying, here's cab fare to go back to dad. Now, I know the pastor. He's a friend of mine. I'm so tempted to call him and say, you know, have you ever thought of maybe just calling and seeing how he's doing? But it's important that this guy calls the pastor because he gets camel fare or cab fare back to the father. Jesus tells stories about lost people who don't feel lost. He tells stories about people who feel like they cannot go home. Maybe that's you. You're sitting in church and you can't go home. There's a part of us that knows that there's a better home for our hearts. And we ache to get there. And sometimes we just wander away, so we have to wander back. But we realize that we can't get there by ourselves. We have to be brought back home. Only Jesus can break us home. Hey, let me, let me help you memorize the whole Bible, all right? Memorize the whole Bible, well, the most important verse in the Bible. Most important verse in the Bible for me, when he came to his senses. That's it, right there. Can you do that? Say that with me. When he came to his senses. That's the, that's the linchpin of this story. It says he's out in the pig's slop, up to his knees, can't even eat the corn cobs, the pig. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, even my father's slaves live better than this. How can I go home? Most important verse for the human heart. Stella, my little Stella, reminds me that prodigals don't all look alike and some of us get caught far from home and we are stuck in amber. We cannot get back. We need help to get back home. You know, the only time that God ever runs, God's never in a hurry, right? But the only time that God ever runs in the Scriptures is in the story in Luke 15. It says, when he saw his son coming, he ran to him. He hurried to embrace his lost son. And I think that's a reason for people not wanting to come home. Sometimes they don't want to come home because they're embarrassed. Sometimes it's because they're too proud to admit that they were wrong. Sometimes they don't want to come home because home is filled with you, with older brothers, with the rule followers, the rule lovers, the one who make following Jesus look boring. I don't want to go home to that. I want to go home. That's what we want to talk about. How can we come home? And how can we be a home for other people that Jesus is calling to come to them? Jake gave us a great prayer. He, he asked us to pray it each week of this series. I'd, I'd love to have us put that up on the screen so we could pray it together. He, it'll hit you different each week. This This time it says to me, God, if you're real, awaken in me the possibility of your love. God, 
if you're really there, if you see that prodigal father or daughter or friend or colleague who's out there and they can't get back, if you're really there, awaken in them the possibility of your love. God, if it's me, I come to church, but I'm in the driver's seat. Awaken in me the possibility of your love. Brothers and sisters, even if it's just for practice, would you pray this prayer with me? Let's pray together. God, if you're real, awaken in me the possibility of your love. And the love of the Father, the grace of Jesus, and the peace of the Holy Spirit will guard that prayer. Amen.